Mark chapter 2. We will be looking at the first 12 verses this morning. Before we dive into it, just one quick announcement. On Wednesday nights, we are in need of two nursery workers. If all you can give is just one week of service, then Laura invites you to come and see her, Laura Sweden. She is uh, the head of our Awana program. So if you would like to serve or uh, love hanging out with children, uh, this would be a great way to, to help out on Wednesday nights. So you can see Laura Sweden about that. So if you would look with me, we will begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to see our greatest need, the need for a Savior who forgives sins. Father, may you be glorified through this passage. May you speak through this lowly preacher. And may we all experience your grace today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Karen Tumulty is a columnist for the Washington Post, and while doing research for a biography on the late Nancy Reagan, she came across a letter that former President Reagan had written to his father-in-law, Loyal Davis. With permission from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, Karen Tumulty posted the letter in a recently published article titled, A Private Letter from Ronald Reagan to His Dying Father-in-Law Shows the President's Faith. And this letter revealed that President Reagan was concerned about the condition of his father-in-law. 
You see, Loyal Davis was an atheist. He was on his deathbed when Reagan penned the letter with great urgency to him. But not about his physical condition. It was about the state of his soul. Davis had once wrote, If we are remembered and discussed with pleasure and happiness after death, this is our heavenly reward. Reagan, realizing that eternity was at stake, sought to share the good news of the gospel to his father-in-law by way of his own personal experience and by the claims of who Jesus is in the Bible. In Reagan's letter to Loyal, he writes the following, quote, Loyal, I know of your feeling, your doubt, but I, could I just impose on you a little longer? Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of the Messiah. They said he would be born in a lowly place, would proclaim himself the Son of God, and would be put to death for saying that. All in all, there were a total of 123 specific prophecies about his life, all of which came true. Crucifixion was unknown in those times, yet it was foretold that he would be nailed to a cross of wood. And one of the predictions was that he would be born of a virgin. Now, I know that is probably the hardest for you as a doctor to accept. The only answer that can be given is a miracle. But, Loyal, I don't find that as great a miracle as the actual history of his life. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and faker suffer the death he did when all he had to do was say, save himself was admit that he was lying? The Apostle John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Nancy Reagan, who was with her father when he died, later stated that she believed her father did indeed turn to God before his death. She would say, I noticed he was calmer and not as afraid. We all enjoy heartwarming stories, and this is no doubt one of those. This story gives us a glimpse of the president as a, in his role of a son who loves and cares for his father-in-law. But it reveals something that is true of every person who has walked, is currently walking, or will walk this earth. It reveals to us that our greatest need is for a Savior who has the authority and the power to forgive sin. It was the spiritual condition of Loyal Davis that concerned Reagan the most, and it is the condition that Jesus will deal with most and first and foremost in our passage today. So if you would note with me, we will see the scene of the story at the beginning. Verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum, 
Several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Jesus had been traveling all throughout Galilee. He was preaching, he was healing, and he was casting out demons. And throughout chapter 1, you see clear battle lines being drawn between Jesus and Satan. Jesus had showed power over Satan in the wilderness when he was tempted by him for 40 days. He taught with a different kind of authority in the synagogue, unlike that of the religious leaders. And he casted out demons and even commanded them not to reveal who he was. After some time, he came back to Capernaum, which would be the base of his operation. And he was in the home, probably that of Peter, which you see in chapter 1 and verse 29. And because of what Jesus has done in chapter 1, his popularity is growing. Because of the miraculous healings, a crowd finds out his location and begins to swarm the house to the point that no one could enter. And it's interesting to know, and it doesn't specifically tell us in Mark, but in Luke's version of the story, he lets us know that the Pharisees and the scribes are also in attendance with the crowd. Luke says they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees had no doubt heard stories from the people about what Jesus had done, and they were curious. And they had come to see who this man was and what he was about. Crowds will play an important role in Mark. Mark will mention crowds being around Jesus to attest to his popularity nearly 40 times before chapter 10. They are the audience for his teaching. They are the object of his compassion. But Mark never describes the crowds turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. And he also lets us know that their motives for coming to Jesus will vary. One of those motives is for selfish gain. They have seen others healed. They have seen demons being cast out of people. And they come to Jesus only for what he can do for them. Another motive you, you see is that of genuine curiosity. The way that Jesus went about teaching, it was different. They even noticed that in chapter 1. He carried with him an authority and power unlike any other. They were genuinely curious about who Jesus was. And a third motive for following Jesus was simply to try and discredit his ministry altogether. In this case, it comes from what should be an unlikely source in the religious leaders. And as we think about these motives for the crowd for following Jesus, no doubt that when we think about society today, that these motives are indeed the same. One thing is certain, people still seek out Jesus just for what he can do for them. They view him as a personal genie who can 
meet their every need. Or they merely view him for personal entertainment. And sadly, some churches will cater to this mentality. There are those who simply seek to blaspheme his name. We see that playing out across our country today. There is a failure to recognize sin, and majority of the time there's even failure to pay lip service to sin in general, and a failure to recognize Jesus' divine sonship. But then there are those who are genuinely curious and seeking Jesus because of what they heard. Maybe they have been taught false doctrine and have discovered it to be just that, false, and recognize that they are in need of truth and they are seeking that. And so seeing the motives of the crowd, I simply want to ask you this morning and myself, what are your motives for following Jesus? There's always a reason why we come. You see, the larger crowds will depict outsiders who are either opposed to Jesus or they are uncertain. Which is why later on in chapter 4, he will teach in parables. But on the other hand, we see that houses or private settings are places where Jesus explains in much greater detail and allows his disciples to, to get a glimpse of who he really is. So the crowds will gather at the house where Jesus is and notice that he is speaking the word to them. Healings and casting out demons were a key part of Jesus' ministry, but they were not the main part of his ministry. It was the preaching of the word. It's interesting to note that early on in chapter 1, Mark will portray Jesus as a preacher first before he is a miracle worker. Later in chapter 1, in verse 38, Jesus will tell his disciples, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Why? So that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Now, another question we must ask is, what is the word? It is the gospel or the good news about the kingdom of God. When Jesus came on the scene, it says that he was preaching a message of repentance and belief in the kingdom of God. It is a message that his hearers cannot be passive about. And it is while he is preaching that you notice some more people come on the scene. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. These men, no doubt, had heard about Jesus' healings, and they were confident that he could help their friend. But notice the path was blocked. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof 
above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. These men, no doubt, they show up seeking Jesus because of a genuine need, and they realize immediately that they cannot get to him. And does this discourage them? Not at all. Not at all. It does not discourage them from being creative and figuring out a way to get to Jesus. You see, in those days, houses were made of stone and had an outside staircase that led up to the roof. The roof was made of wood beams, cross-laid with smaller branches and packed with a mixture of clay, mud, and grass. Perfect for digging. So these men carried their friend up to the roof and proceeded to rip a hole in the roof. Now for you and I, if we had Jesus in our home and someone came bringing a friend who has a need and they can't get to him, and immediately we see our roof being destroyed, we're going to panic, right? We're going to freak out. But Jesus continues to teach. And this man is lowered to him to the point where he is down where Jesus is. So we have the scene that is set. And secondly, we see the healing and the confrontation. Verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. The first thing that it notes about Jesus is it says that he sees their faith. There is a hole in the roof. There is debris all over the place and probably on the people below them. Nothing is mentioned of the hole. Nothing is mentioned of the destruction of the house. Nothing is mentioned about how dirty everyone is. But Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith. You see, it is no accident that the first usage of the word faith in this book is associated with action. These men carrying the paralytic had an active faith. That is the description. Earlier this week, Jonathan and I had an opportunity to travel to Toronto, Canada to meet with church planters in the city and to hear about the ministry there, to hear about the need. And on Tuesday, we met with a particular church planter from Pakistan. I won't reveal his name because of his background, but he and his family moved to Canada about four years ago. He was converted to Christianity about 15 years ago. He was a surgeon at a hospital. He immediately dropped that and began planting churches in Pakistan. He then shared with us that his brother-in-law worked in the government. And our interpretation was that he had converted 
to Christianity as well. His family had been converted, and one day he saw his brother-in-law get assassinated on his front steps. He revealed to us that the government then were searching for his family, ultimately to do the same thing for him. So they moved to Canada, where he would then begin planting churches. And as we began talking with this man, we realized that there was some urgency in him because of his background. He would then paint a picture for us that basically all religions are shopping for people in a marketplace. He would tell us that we are fighting for souls. We must have an active faith when we go out in public, when we interact with our family, when we interact with our friends, when we interact with strangers. And a question that this man posed to us two or three times during the course of our conversation was, who will do the work if we don't do it? If we are not going out and searching for those who are in need of Jesus, then inevitably somebody else will. Or to bring it closer to home, do we have an active faith personally? Are we searching for Jesus actively in our own lives? Are we aware of our need for Him. We must have an active faith. It removes obstacles, even a roof, if that is what it takes to get to Jesus. Now, the question of whether their faith includes the paralytics is not directly addressed. It's hard to imagine that he would have been brought against his will to be healed. And at the very least, Jesus is speaking of the faith of the four men who brought the paralytic to him. He honors their faith by extending his mercy towards the paralytic, but not in the way that they were expecting. Instead of telling the man that he is healed, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And no doubt that this came as a shock to everyone who was present, especially to the paralytic and his friends. We do not know how far they brought him. We do not know how long he had been carrying them. It probably took a while to dig the hole in the roof. They are worn out. And then they hear the words, Son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Maybe they thought that Jesus forgot there was a more immediate need present. But Jesus was concerned about his greatest need, which was the need to have his sins dealt with. And ultimately, that is the greatest concern for each and every one of us, is to have our sins dealt with. We need the forgiveness of sins. But this also poses a question. 
are the sins of this man, this paralytic, and his physical condition related? And here is where we must be careful. There are cases where physical sickness and sin are related, but it is not always so. Many scholars believe that in this case here, it is related, but one thing we do know that is certain, the paralytic's condition reminds us that all sickness and evil is a result of sin, and that his condition reminds us that this world is a broken place. More so than that, Jesus' words remind us that we have been separated from God because of sin, and the only way back to God is through the forgiveness of sins. One commentator that I was reading this week said this, and I love these words. He says, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. If Jesus had forgiven the paralytic's sin and nothing and done nothing more, this man would have benefited for all eternity. On the other hand, if Jesus would have healed his body and done nothing more, then the man would have been worse off. He would have still been in his sin. And once the words, your sins are forgiven, immediately it shifts, the focus shifts from the paralytic to the religious leaders who are present. Now, it was common for Jews back in this day to believe that sin was the cause of physical illness. We find that to be the case in John chapter 9, verse 2, when the disciples ask whether it was personal sin or the sins of the blind man's parents that caused him to be blind, to which Jesus responded, it is neither. But since forgiveness of sins was exclusively the work of God, Jewish leaders dared not utter the words, your sins are forgiven when someone approached them for healing. The scribes are correct in asking the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And we see this to be the case all across the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says that it is God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, it says, God is a God of forgiveness. In Psalm 103.3, says, God is the one who pardons all our iniquities. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, it says, I, that is God speaking, even I am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake. And I will remember your sins no more. 
the scribes assess the situation correctly, but they completely miss the mark on who Jesus is. They claimed, rather, that he was blaspheming. And according to the law, blasphemy is punishable by death. The scribes showed that they do not understand that Jesus is God. And this should remind us that it is vitally important to have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. We have a society that loves to describe Jesus in numerous ways. Prophet, a good man, a good moral teacher. If your knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is comes from any place other than the word of God, then you are in a dangerous place. Because the word of God tells us that Jesus is God. And he will reveal that to be the case in this passage. For the scribes, it did not occur to them that this man was the Messiah that was talked about throughout the Old Testament. And notice something interesting here. They don't utter a word. They were thinking these things in their hearts. And Jesus, it says in verse 8, immediately was aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. Their hostility in their hearts and their minds could not be hidden from Jesus. It reveals that he is all-knowing, another characteristic of his divine sonship. And it also reminds us that he indeed knows our thoughts. He knows the things that we do not say. We may be good at hiding our inner thoughts and our secret sins from others, but there is still an audience. We cannot hide them from God. They will be confronted, and that is the case here. Jesus confronts their thoughts in their minds, and he does so with two questions. Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Those are the questions that Jesus poses to the scribes. The scribes knew about Jesus' ability to heal people. That is probably part of why they came in the first place, word had spread about what all Jesus was doing, and they probably expected Jesus to heal this man. There's no doubt about that, but instead he forgives them, forgives him of his sins. So to them, not only does this sound like blasphemy, but it sounds like an easy way out. Why would I say that? 
Well, anyone can say that sins are forgiven. That is something invisible that we cannot see. But on the other hand, it takes great authority and power to heal the paralyzed man. Ultimately, if Jesus shows that he has authority and power to heal the paralyzed man, then it proves he has authority and power to forgive sins, therefore proving that he is in fact God. And that is exactly what he does. Verse 10, he says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Now we notice here in verse 10 that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is the first time in Mark that Jesus will refer to himself with this title. In fact, he will call himself by this title 14 times throughout the book of Mark, and it is his favorite title for himself. So let's dive into this title just a little bit to get a glimpse of who Jesus is revealing himself to be. Son of man can be divided into three categories in Mark. Three times the term occurs in apocalyptic context. You see that in chapters 8 and 13 and 16. And it's similar to the Old Testament usage of the word in Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, where it refers to the Son of Man coming in judgment. On two times, the term refers to Jesus' earthly authority to forgive sins and his authority over the Sabbath, chapter 2. And nine times, the most times, it is used to refer to Jesus' suffering. And that would occur later in several chapters in Mark. Each of these three categories refers to a divine attribute or, as in the case of the third category, fulfilling a divinely ordained purpose. Specifically, for our passage today, the term refers to Jesus' authority to forgive sins, alluding to the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7, who likewise is empowered with authority. Later on in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus would again use the term Son of Man to imply that he has the authority to forgive sins, but there he weds the Son of Man from Daniel 7 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It is this Son of Man, the one who will give his life as a ransom for many. This is the one that has the authority to forgive sin. And you will know it by watching the paralytic get up, pick up his bed, and walk home. And finally, we see the response to this. Verse 12 
And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. First, we see the paralytic respond to Jesus with obedience. And again, this takes faith. Think about his condition. His body is useless. He is dependent upon other people for his needs. He has been brought to a house where several people are gathered who are staring at him. And no doubt with his condition, this could be embarrassing because he cannot do anything for himself. So when Jesus tells him, get up, pick up your bed and walk, he is asking him to do something he has not done in a very long time. But he responds with faith and obedience And he gets up. What was once a useless body was now a useful body. And the way that this is written in Greek, it implies that he started walking and he kept on walking. This indicates that it was a complete cure. Luke tells us in his version that the paralytic went home glorifying God. How could he not? When he showed up to the house, he was dead and sin, in sin and paralyzed. When he left the house, he was alive in Christ and praising God for complete healing. And the promise of Isaiah 35, 6 comes to life before everyone in the room and before us. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Not only was the paralytic's response that of praise and glorifying God, but the crowd was also amazed and glorifying God because of what they had just witnessed. There was reason to praise. Jesus has just revealed himself to them to be the Messiah. To be the one that they were to look for. The one who was promised all the way back in Genesis. But also remember that not everyone in the crowd was glorifying God. The scribes were still present. And in reality, this shows us that there are only two ways to respond to what we have just looked at. When convicted of our sin and presented with Jesus, we either respond as the scribes did, where we reject him and blaspheme him, And we reject his remedy for sin. Or we respond like the paralytic 
We respond by turning from sin, bowing the knee to Jesus, and placing our faith in Him. Friends, there is no middle ground. There is no third option. We either reject Him or bow the knee to Him and glorify Him for who He is. C.S. Lewis would get at the heart of the identity of Jesus in his famous trilemma. He would write, and I quote, Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. What this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This Jesus, the Son of Man, is the God who forgives sin. And as we close, I want to leave you with a couple of questions that you and I must answer. Number one, is Jesus, the Son of Man, is He your God? Number two, has he forgiven your sins? When convicted of sin, do you respond as the scribes did or do and reject him and reject his authority? Or when convicted with sin and presented with Jesus, do you repent? Do you turn from your sin And lay down your life before him and follow him and glorify him. There is no other way to respond. Let's pray. Father, we must 
confess this morning that it is not easy to hear that there is something wrong with us, that we are bad. But indeed, that's what your word says, that without Christ, we are enemies of you. But the glory of the gospel is that you do not leave us that way. That indeed, from Genesis and moving forward, the promised Messiah would come, and he did indeed come to give his life as a ransom for those who would turn from their sin and confess you as Lord. Father, I pray that if there is anyone in this room who is that, that is not the case, that they have not confessed you as Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And for those who are sitting in this room who are indeed believers and who are indeed following you, Father, I pray that this passage would lead us to glorify you even more. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son who gave his life for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.